Good morning and welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Athey and I'm joined by Jessica Burbank. We've got some breaking news to get into this morning, so let's get right to it. It has been confirmed by multiple sources that California Senator Dianne Feinstein has passed away at the age of 90. First elected to the Senate in 1992, Feinstein served three decades as a Democratic Senator from the Golden State, the longest serving member of the Senate Democratic Conference. During her Senate tenure, she left a mark on a range of issues, including national security and gun control. Feinstein had been struggling with her health and had missed some work this week, as reported by The Hill. Prior to that, she had been suffering from health issues for several months. Statements of recognition have begun to pour out from both sides of the aisle. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Dianne Feinstein, right from the start, was an icon for women in politics. And Senator Chuck Schumer said she's a legend, a legend in California as the first woman senator, a legend in the Senate. She was the leader on so many different issues. Here's House Rules Committee Chair Republican Tom Cole asking for a moment of silence in a meeting this morning after hearing the news. And with that, I yield back. Thank you very much. The chair is uh, very sad to announce uh, there are unconfirmed reports of the passing of Senator Feinstein. Uh, so uh, I know uh, many of us had the opportunity to deal with her, and certainly all of us on both sides now respect her. I would ask before we proceed that we observe a moment of silence and uh, recognition and memory of our colleague on the other side of the rotunda. As Punchbowl News notes, Feinstein's death will set off a scramble in California as Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom is expected to appoint a caretaker for her seat to serve through the 2024 election. So lots of shakeups in the Democratic caucus. We have the drama with Menendez and now Feinstein's seat entirely open. Uh, her death is something that, you know, we don't know what the cause of it was. Uh, unfortunately, we all know what the cause of it was. She was 90 years old and serving in the Senate. She already had her daughter uh, serving with power of attorney. And I think this whole situation would have been a bit better if she stepped down before things got to this point. I think a lot of members uh, of the U.S. Congress would agree with that. They saw her in meetings not be fully present. Uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of members serving in public office experiencing cognitive decline. Of course, it's always sad whenever there's a death or the loss of life. But I think this is a, a good time to reflect on her legacy uh, and maybe retiring in a timely manner should have been a part of her legacy as well. It's really sad to see. Yeah, I agree. I think this situation is made all the more tragic by the fact that she was literally working up until her death. She was counted on a vote just yesterday as voting for a piece of legislation. And this morning we find out that she passed away. Uh, that, I think, is elder abuse. People should not be working up until the age of 90 to the point where they actually pass away while they're still on the job. It's absolute insanity. She should have stepped down years ago before some of her mental issues started. Her Democratic colleagues were speaking anonymously to news outlets as many as two years ago, warning about her cognitive decline. And when someone is in that state, when someone is basically in hospice care at this point, they should be spending their remaining years with their family and at home, not shuttling back and forth between Washington, D.C. and their home state of California and trying to you know, take on the schedule of a senator. 
Um, so this situation, I agree, is made all the more sad by the way that she was treated in her final years. And you can only place so much blame on Senator Feinstein herself because she, again, had these cognitive deficiencies. She needed the people around her to be able to take her out of this situation and, and take care of her. And instead, they just had this death grip on power. She was hospitalized with shingles earlier this year. She was out of the Senate for several months. When she finally got back, we found out that we didn't even hear the, the full extent of her condition. She ended up developing encephalitis and some other complications from her illness. And there was that infamous clip that we ran on this show where she was confused about what was going on when she returned to the Senate and then was confused when she was sitting down in a vote and thought that she was supposed to give a speech and her staffers had to tell her to vote yay on the legislation. Um, so across the board, this is a, a good reminder of just how geriatric our Congress has become and the sadness that's associated with the obsession with power to the point that you end up pushing this woman basically to her grave. And literally pushing. You had Nancy Pelosi's daughter pushing Feinstein around the halls of Congress in a wheelchair. If that's not a perfect metaphor, and it's not even a metaphor because it's literally what happened, but Nancy Pelosi, the, the speaker's daughter, pushing Feinstein around the halls of Congress in a wheelchair, it's really, you know, a metaphor for the Democratic establishment keeping the old guard in office, not letting a new generation with new ideas come in and serve and represent the people and their ideas. I think a good solution for the age problem we have in Congress, the oldest Congress in history, could be solved by a simple policy like, well, if we want the retirement age to be 65 in the United States of America, members of Congress should have to retire at the age of 65. I think that's a fine policy. We have members of the Republican caucus wanting to raise the retirement age to 69. That's a really tough age to keep working if you're doing physical labor. And I think members of Congress might have a skewed perspective as to what it means to work into your elder years because it's not a physically taxing job to serve as a member of Congress. Sure, you have to stay up late, you have to sit in meetings, but imagine a coal miner, imagine a carpenter. That's a really tough age to retire. So I think, you know, when we consider the retirement age that Congress is going to hopefully not change, but is considering uh, raising to 69, that's really concerning. But I think members of Congress should retire at whatever that age is, where Medicare kicks in and where Social Security benefits kick in. Yeah, your point is well taken. My dad was a plumber his whole life. He passed away at 59. And the idea that he would have been able to work another six years with the, you know, the physical demands on his body is just absurd. Um, I mean, I don't think there was any way that he was going to make it. Um, and I think at the very least, for Congress, since it's not a physically taxing job, we should implement something like Nikki Haley has suggested multiple times throughout her presidential campaign, where these people have to take some type of cognitive test to prove that they're still able to do the job, um, because we have not just Dianne Feinstein, who, you know, rest in peace, is now gone, but we also still have Mitch McConnell in the Senate, who has had multiple freezing episodes while talking to reporters and staff. We have Joe Biden in the White House, who is confused about where he even is and what he's supposed to be doing on a weekly, if not daily basis. John Fetterman, who requires significant aids just to, to do the basics and spent several weeks in the hospital um, suffering from severe depression. I mean, the people 
around them need to say that you need to step aside and take care of yourself. But barring that, there needs to be some kind of regulation or limit on when people are able to serve Americans if they're not cognitively able to do so. I think we have to look at what comes next here, too, as well, because uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California is going to be able to choose Dianne Feinstein's replacement. The shortlist seems to be made up of a few different people, including Adam Schiff, who was Speaker Nancy Pelosi's pick, uh, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who I believe is the top choice for Gavin Newsom because he's committed to appointing a black woman. Um, and then Katie Porter is running, was already um, running for election once Feinstein planned to retire. Some people have suggested that Gavin Newsom should also appoint Kamala and then he should take over as VP. So any number of scenarios, um, I've even seen Meghan Markle's name floated out there. It seems to me like the most likely scenario is Barbara Lee, but I don't know. I wanted to get your take on this, Jess, because I don't really understand the commitment to appointing just a black woman. It's like identity politics. I would prefer that he just appoint somebody who's the most qualified and maybe is most in line with the policies that he wants to see. We saw Biden do the same thing with picking Kamala, and that didn't turn out so well. Right. Yeah. I think the most important thing when we consider that representation matters uh, is that pick actually going to represent the community that they come from well we had kamala be the top cop in california and want to send mothers to jail and prison for truancy issues because their kids were absent at school that's not going to solve this problem of kids being absent at school or empower mothers to become better parents so i think when we consider representation and the identity politics of it all you want a member of the community that's going to represent the community well and i think barbara lee is a good pick simply because she's a member of congress that's an independent thinker with a lot of foresight she was the lone vote against the iraq war she's someone who assesses political issues from an independent perspective despite being kind of a loyal member of the Democratic Party. She is a progressive. Gavin Newsom does run as a progressive uh, when we think about national issues, probably not for California standards. But Newsom is, by national standards in the U.S., a progressive. Barbara Lee would be a good pick for those reasons. And I wish he had put forth those reasons as to why she was the pick rather than just is committed to appointing a black woman. So I think she's the best pick. I think it would be controversial to pick Katie Porter, someone who's already running for Senate. Uh, but there is this dynamic of when we have the succession of members of Congress being chosen by the governor of this state, now whoever is put in that seat is a household name. People have that name recognition. So then ultimately when they run for office, they're more likely to win. It allows the party to kind of hand pick who they want in these seats when this happens. And if Dianne Feinstein had retired in a timely manner, we could have had a proper democratic election instead of someone who's a member of the party establishment picking who comes in next. And so that's why I'm super critical of the process as a whole. I think Barbara Lee would be a great pick, but I don't think we're going to get that lucky. Yeah, that's a great point about, you know, basically eschewing a democratic election by Democrats handpicking the successor, because as you said, whoever gets appointed to this seat is almost certainly going to win the special election when it comes around. Um, so really doesn't give voters much of a say, unfortunately, another sad side effect of the death of Dianne Feinstein. But of course, we hope that her soul rests in peace. We hope that her family is doing well and will be 
thinking and praying uh, for everybody who knew her. All right, we're gonna leave it there. We'll be back with more Rising after this. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is in hot water amid the government shutdown crisis. Conservative members within the Republican Party are discussing potential alternatives to McCarthy as their leader. This, according to Politico, one name that has been mentioned is Majority Whip Tom Emmer. According to the report, the challenge in finding a new speaker lies in the lack of consensus, as many doubt that anyone else could garner McCarthy's level of support within the divided GOP conference. Even if McCarthy were ousted and didn't run again, members fear an open speaker's race would turn into a contentious battle, potentially leaving them without a clear successor. Meanwhile, according to The Washington Post, Jeff Stein, the White House Budget Office has instructed U.S. agencies to notify federal employees on status of government funding Thursday morning. It remains unclear when exactly employees will be notified if they're being furloughed. However, that planning is well underway. So this is kind of a crazy situation. I mean, of course, there were all of these deals made between Gates and that faction of the Republican Party and McCarthy that they feel he didn't make good on. But recent interviews with McCarthy really make it seem like he didn't quite have his stuff together and now has this sort of bargaining chip of the border. And he says the border needs to be under control before we pass a spending package almost using this as, uh, you know, the government will shut down the government unless we secure the border. We're not really sure what that means. It seems that the plan is once they get the Senate's bipartisan bill, they're going to change it up and add in some more funding for a plan with the border, take out the Ukraine funding from it. But I think the Republican Party is in a bit of a mess. That sounds like a plan the House Republicans would put forth. But it seems that Gates and Gates's faction is pretty set on finding a new leader. But there really isn't a clear pick as to who. Yeah, I honestly can't think of a single person that would be able to bring the caucus together the way that McCarthy has. I have a lot of criticism of McCarthy. I don't think he's a very ideological guy. I think he's kind of a guy in search of power. But uh, sometimes you need that in the speaker position just for the means of negotiation. And I think there's a fundamental problem here, which is that regardless of how far McCarthy goes in appeasing the House Freedom Caucus, those bills aren't going to pass in the Senate. So it makes the idea of a government shutdown seem increasingly likely. We also saw that just this morning, the Republicans um, introduced a, uh, a new bill that would basically cut spending across the board by 30 percent, um, would hold off the government shutdown until the end of October, would also include some funding for border security. But again, is a 30 percent across the board cut with exemptions for national defense, the Departments of Veterans Affairs and Homeland Security, really something that's going to be able to get the votes in the Senate. So I think McCarthy's kind of in, uh, in between a rock and a hard place here, where he's trying to appease the conservative base. And he's given them a lot of buy-in in the process, to be fair. And there's a huge swath of the Republican Party base as well in terms of voters who don't mind a shutdown because they want to see significant spending cuts. Um, but again, if you can't get a bill passed in both chambers, then it doesn't really matter. So I, I don't know where any negotiation is going to end up in a way that's going to satisfy both sides in this 
at this point. Gates has already sort of um, suggested previously that he wants to get rid of McCarthy. I think that he intentionally left the, those papers in the bathroom a couple of weeks ago that said he was calling for the speaker seat to be vacant and to, for McCarthy to be removed. It was so meticulously laid out on this um, underneath this baby changing table next to like a half empty uh, iced coffee. It seemed a little convenient. So I think that was the warning shot. And now things are kind of bubbling over. Yeah, I think we have to think about the real consequences of a shutdown. And I'm not sure members of Congress are asked frequently enough about what they have to say about the immediate consequences uh, to not only non-essential federal employees, about 4 million of them uh, will be without pay initially. And of course, if the shutdown lasts longer, that means we're gonna dip into more of the essential government employees. But within one or two days of a shutdown, the WIC program for women's infants and children, the supplemental nutritional program, uh, will not be funded. They will not get the necessary resources they need. So children under five will be without food as an immediate impact of the government shutdown. And so it seems to me that these larger political fights, you wanna talk about the crisis on the border, they wanna talk about uh, the budget as a whole and what the deficit looks like. There's a time and place for budgeting. But to make women and children who are relying on this program to receive food go without it because you want to have these larger political fights that you don't have democratic support for or consensus within Congress is ridiculous. And using the government shutdown as a, re a reason for public program cuts is absurd. We had Donald Trump say we shouldn't cut Social Security. But we had a group of Republicans say that they want to raise the retirement age uh, as high as 69, and they want to make cuts to Social Security and Medicare, and they say that this is the biggest stressor on the budget. It's absolutely not. Look at any other public program where we're doing significant spending. Look at the defense budget, almost $900 billion. We're nearing a trillion dollars that we're spending on defense, and they want to talk about programs that are about 10% of that. And so it really seems to me a political agenda to make the urgency seem greater than it is to cut programs that don't need to be cut. Uh, and they do this too often, and they're not criticized enough for not doing their job of budgeting when it's the time to do that. And instead pushing us to a shutdown, it's just really bad politics. It's a really bad job as a member of Congress. Yeah, I think it's difficult on the Medicare and Social Security question because those are the significant chunk of the discretionary spending. So much of government spending is mandatory. So if you're going to make significant cuts, those are basically the only programs that you can talk about because I think there's something like 80% of discretionary spending. And on Social Security, the program is set to be insolvent soon. So we're not even going to see any of that unless they make some kind of reform. Is raising the retirement age the right answer? I don't know. I appreciate the Republicans are at least talking about it and trying to take that issue seriously so that people who pay into Social Security throughout their whole life are able to eventually get back what they paid in. But I'm with you on making sure that people who need immediate assistance are not hanging in the balance during a shutdown. Meanwhile, as well, uh, during a closed-door House GOP conference meeting yesterday, Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Matt Gates engaged in a heated exchange. Gates accused McCarthy of orchestrating a social media campaign against him, which McCarthy denied. These tensions have escalated, with Gates openly threatening to push for a vote to oust McCarthy as Speaker unless certain demands related to spending and legislation are met. Here's Gates outside Capitol Hill, seemingly just after the exchange. 
Sounds like you got into an exchange with the speaker. What happened? Uh, you know, I uh, I asked him whether or not he was paying those influencers to post negative things about me online. I think he's he said he wouldn't. He said he wouldn't waste. He said he wouldn't waste time on you. Yeah, that is what he said. So he's talking about a screenshot that's been floating around where somebody, I don't, I didn't say who it was, was messaging conservative influencers on social media purporting to be a pro-McCarthy person um, and offer to potentially pay these people to post nice things about the speaker. There's obviously no evidence that these people are actually associated with McCarthy or, or work for him in any capacity. But... The suggestion was there, and this is a pretty common thing where um, individuals who uh, work for consulting firms for these people or media firms will reach out to influencers. I think it's—I haven't heard of people being paid previously, um, but that message is kind of sketchy, and I, I think it suggests, at the very least, that the pressure that Gates is putting on McCarthy is starting to really get to him. Yeah, I, I really think this is the usual dirty politics that goes into quelling the discontent and attention given to outsiders. Right now, Gates is kind of an outsider in the Republican Party. There are a lot of folks who support McCarthy and have simply asked, all right, Matt Gates, if you don't want McCarthy as speaker, who do you propose as the replacement? And that seems to be you know, where that argument ends. They really don't have a replacement for McCarthy. But obviously, McCarthy is someone that's motivated by power. He really wants to hold this seat as the speaker, so much so that they went through a grueling, I think it was 15 votes was the total count. Uh, he made members of Congress stay up late into the night to secure the role of speaker. And he seems to be someone that wants to maintain that role at any cost. And I'm almost positive this is illegal activity if it is coming from the McCarthy camp to pay influencers to say bad things about Matt Gates. But it doesn't seem far off from the usual playbook of American politics, especially when we have outsiders, you know, trying to cause problems within the establishment. And this screenshot, I think, is one of many. Gates has talked about this happening quite a bit. I'm not sure how valid this screenshot is, but it does seem to be within the usual scope of what happens. So if you're Matt Gates, I would get a lot of press to this, which it seems he's dedicated to doing. He reposted it to his, his own account. And I think it's good to expose whenever you have establishment members playing dirty politics like this. If it wasn't McCarthy, it was some donor who likes the establishment, who likes McCarthy, which is almost just as bad. And so what's going on with Matt Gates, I think, is important. But it's not as important as I think Congress right now drawing attention to their constitutional power of the purse. They've given so much power uh, to the Fed, to the Treasury, to the president when they have the power to say uh, how much money that Congress can spend. They decided to adjust the debt limit so that Social Security checks would continue to go out. And I think they need to put more focus on their power to, to issue debt on behalf of the United States, but also simply to spend public dollars on things that they deem necessary. Unfortunately, many members of Congress don't understand economics. They don't understand that if their spending goes to increase productivity in the country, that it's justified and will make the country whole where it really matters in terms of accounting. But issuing uh, debt in the form of treasury bonds that we'll then have to pay interest in is simply not necessary. And all members of Congress act as if it is, 
Uh, I think it's time for all of them to be questioning the usual way of doing public spending and actually utilize their power of the purse here. Yeah, and I want to clarify something I said earlier. Well, not clarify, I was wrong, but it's about 50% of discretionary spending that accounts for social programs outside of the defense budget. And then on my point earlier about, you know, people not getting paid to, to promote this kind of stuff, I think I'm speaking for myself. I, I've never received an offer to be paid to boost something. Sometimes people will send, you know, people in my orbit these posts and say, hey, can you share this? And I, I frequently, I feel icky doing that. I don't, really engage in that. Um, but the idea that someone would come to me with even a monetary offer is really gross. And, and so if this has any connection to McCarthy whatsoever, I think you're right. It's, it's sort of proof of this dirty politics, this corruption that's really involved in trying to imitate grassroots, grassroots movements and using uh, big money to do it. It's a real shame. So we'll be following the shutdown uh, coming up and whether or not anyone is successful with changing the levers of spending. We'll be back with more rising after this. Republicans' plan to bring an impeachment against President Biden appears to have gotten off to a rocky start. In the first impeachment inquiry hearing yesterday, the GOP witnesses undercut allegations that the president was a recipient of bribes in connection to his son Hunter Biden's business deals. And one senior aide in the House called it a, quote, unmitigated disaster per CNN's reporter, Melanie Zanona. Here's Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez questioning the GOP witnesses. Let's watch. Mr. Turley, I have a simple question for you. In your testimony today, are you presenting any firsthand witness account of crimes committed by the President of the United States? No, I'm not. No, you are not. Ms. O'Connor. You are the second uh, Republican witness here today. Have you, in your testimony, presented any firsthand witness account of crimes committed by, pre by the President of the United States? I have not. Their third witness also said he had no evidence. Chairman Comer also appeared to get in a shouting match with a Democratic member on the panel, Daniel Goldman. Take a look. Chair recognizes Mr. Donald for five minutes. Order, You'll have Chair. five minutes. You'll have my five minutes. Of order. No, you're out of order. You're out of order, Mr. Goldman. I have a when, you're, when your time is, I will be recognized. Chair recognizes Mr. Donald for five minutes. Is it being introduced? Chair recognizes Mr. Donald's for five minutes. Byron, it's Mr. your Chairman, time. The rules require you Thank to you, recognize. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. No. Yes, for a point of order, they absolutely do. Chair recognizes Mr. Donald. Meanwhile, Republican Congresswoman from South Carolina, Nancy Mace, did not hold back with her allotted time. Let's watch. We already know the president took bribes from Burisma. I also want to add, betraying your country is treason. All right, heavy charge there, Jessica. And I have to say, I don't think that the impeachment inquiry hearing was as bad as the media made it out to be. They all were kind of replaying this AOC clip ad nauseum. And I don't think there was ever any suggestion that Jonathan Turley, who's a constitutional law scholar, was going to arrive in there with direct evidence of Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's corruption. I think he was trying to help them put the pieces together. But when you watch some of the other clips from the hearing where they really laid out the evidence in full, 
I thought that they did a good job. And this is the first hearing in the impeachment inquiry. I don't think anyone's expecting at this point, or they shouldn't be expecting at this point, that the investigation is concluded and they have the smoking gun yet. The whole point of launching the inquiry in the first place was to have a series of hearings where they could bring in witnesses and hopefully garner some additional testimony, some additional evidence. But just off the top of my head, um, they found this new bank payment that was made from the Chinese energy company to Hunter Biden. The beneficiary address was listed as Joe Biden's Delaware home, even though Hunter was not living there at the time. He had recently moved to California with his new wife. They laid out the actual web chart of the offshore companies and, and businesses that the money was flown through to the Biden family members. They had some new text messages where Hunter Biden was talking with family members about um, how this was all done to protect Joe and how Joe was gleaming some of his, or not gleaming, glomming some of his money. Um, so I think there was evidence presented. It was just that the mainstream media wasn't interested in taking those parts of the hearing and broadcasting them because it would make Biden look bad. I think this was, it was a lot of circumstantial evidence, which doesn't feel like a break from everything we've already seen. When you have James Comer saying that a mountain of evidence will be uncovered, I would assume that means this is evidence that they already have. Then you have Comer saying, well, we're going to subpoena the bank statements from Hunter and Joe Biden and see if we can find that payment from Burisma to Joe and to Hunter. And it seems to me that that's not there. He's still claiming that there are things getting in the way of the investigation. So there are things getting in the way of them acquiring the evidence. At this point, I want evidence of what's getting in the way of them obtaining the evidence because now they have this inquiry open and it wasn't the mountain of evidence with the smoking gun that they made it seem like it would be. And so I'm not sure what's gonna come out of this impeachment inquiry. I would like to see evidence from James Comer of what's getting in the way of the investigation. What ev evidence do you think is there and what is blocking you from obtaining it? I think that's really what we we need to see. Six hours of a hearing, three witnesses that, that don't have any firsthand account of Joe Biden committing any misdemeanors or crimes. I really think if the Republicans wanna be taken seriously on this impeachment inquiry, they're gonna to need to present some more solid evidence than the circumstantial and speculative, or speculative evidence that they've presented here. Yeah, I mean, it's still early, like I said, but they did release a 30-page or so memo yesterday in concurrence with the hearing where they did lay out the evidence that they have thus far. And while it is circumstantial, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to put the threads together and realize that the payments that were being remitted to the Biden family were in exchange for no real services. Um, Hunter Biden at one point received $142,000 from a Kazakhstani oligarch and then bought a sports car the next day. I mean, what work realistically was Hunter Biden doing for some guy in Kazakhstan? And then one of the other stories that's not talked about much, but I think is really good evidence of the corruption scheme, the pay for play, is in 2014, Hunter Biden has had his investment firm, uh, Rosemont Seneca Thornton. He got $3.5 million from a Russian oligarch named Elena Baterina. And around that time was when Joe Biden showed up for dinner with Baterina, um, and uh, and Hunter Biden and Devin Archer at uh, they had dinner at Cafe Milano, 
The lawmaker said there's no evidence that Hunter Biden provided any actual services to Batterina. And meanwhile, she was omitted from a round of U.S. sanctions that were put on uh, Russian oligarchs in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, so for me, that that's pretty good evidence. I mean, you can't obviously directly tie, uh, you know, an email or a text message where Joe Biden says, I'm not going to sanction Batarina because of the millions of dollars she gave my son. But the connection is implied. Yeah, I think they're going to need something stronger than an implied connection and circumstantial evidence if they plan on moving forward with this impeachment. Of course, the inquiry is the place where they're supposed to present evidence. I would just expect more in the first day where it's a six-hour hearing. Uh, I think it's an interesting thing what Nancy Mace said there about treason, because so often you have members of Congress today and members of the United States government that are involved with multinational corporations, whether it's that they have money invested in stock and influence policy in the direction of them making as much money as possible off of their stock. We, we saw this happen a ton during the COVID-19 pandemic when they had information that the general public did not have about how severe the pandemic would be. We saw members of Congress move their investments around so that they could make as much money as possible and wouldn't be financially hurt by the dip in the stock market that we saw as a result of the pandemic. We see members serving in Congress who have, you know, relatives, their partner directly serving on the board of huge companies. And so if we want to call it treason to betray your country in, in this kind of a circumstance where you're accepting money from corporations and profiting off of your public office, then so many members of Congress would lose their seat because they're committing treason. And so I would really like to see that kind of energy applied even handedly, not just when there's someone in office that we don't like or don't agree with. Sure, that's fine. I mean, I'm against corruption across the board. I do think that this situation is a bit escalated because of the fact that Vice President Joe Biden, at the time of these payments, was in fact in charge of policy related to our uh, geopolitical enemies. I mean, particularly with China, Hunter Biden was receiving money from the Chinese energy company. When Vice President Joe Biden went over to try to negotiate um, with Xi Jinping on matters related to the South China Sea and uh, China's demarcation of the South China Sea. He had a long diplomatic meeting with Xi Jinping, didn't accomplish anything. Xi Jinping basically told him to go kick rocks. We're not doing anything differently, thanks to your meeting. And Joe Biden turns around. He goes to meet with Hunter Biden's business partner on the Chinese energy company, which we know Chinese businesses are necessarily loyal to the CCP. And then when he gets home back to the United States, he writes a nice glowing letter of recommendation so that the Chinese businessman's son can get into an elite university. Um, I feel like that's that's heads and tails um, closer to treason than uh, these stock trades, which I agree are bad. Um, but the, the, the situation where you're actually influencing foreign policy in a way that allows our geopolitical enemies to gain more power and territory in exchange for your son getting a few million dollars is despicable. And again, this is early in the impeachment inquiry process. I know we're going to see more as we move along um, throughout the process. But there's so much already, um, even when you have Joe Biden on tape talking about firing that prosecutor who was looking into Burisma, Trump was impeached for far less. He was impeached for a phone call where he asked Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden's corruption. 
in exchange for foreign aid, allegedly. But then when Joe Biden is literally on videotape suggesting the same exact thing, if not worse, enriching his son in exchange for getting rid of an investigation into the company that his son is working for. And he talks about threatening to withhold $100 million in U.S. aid in exchange for that. I just want the same standard to be applied to Biden as it was to Trump, because, again, he was impeached for far, far less. In the case of Joe Biden, I think it's a, a different circumstance when he's trying to make his family wealthier through his ties with foreign corporations, multinational corporations. This is something members of the highest office in the United States have done for ages. And if they really cared about this, I think our members of Congress would be focusing on making legislation to prevent those kinds of deals from happening, to make your family wealthier based on your connections to foreign agencies, to foreign governments. That is something different than asking for aid from a foreign country to influence the outcome of a democratic election in the United States. I think those two things are extraordinarily different. One, you're influencing the politics and the democratic state of our nation. The other, you're obtaining wealth. Both are wrong, but entirely different kinds of crimes, different kinds of collusion with foreign governments. And I think that's why Trump's impeachment was incredibly straightforward and bipartisan. Whereas you have this investigation into Joe Biden, we don't even have concrete evidence that it happened. In the Trump case, we did. But in this case, we don't have the concrete evidence. We don't have the smoking gun. The evidence is circumstantial. And it's different in nature to enrich your family than to overturn an election. Was, but was Trump overturning an election or was he looking into the exact same corruption that we're talking about now? And on your point about, you know, introducing legislation that prevents this type of enriching yourself from corporations, there is a Republican uh, Congressman Zach Nunn, who actually did introduce that legislation earlier this week. So I hope that Democrats will partner with him on that. I think that would go a long way towards having a equally applicable standard to everybody in Congress. But I don't think that means that the Republicans are wrong to also ask for accountability from Joe Biden. We're going to have to leave it there. We'll be back with more rising after this. House Republicans have advanced a stopgap bill to avoid a government shutdown, with the final vote expected to happen later today. Here to weigh in is The Hill's Michael Schnell. Thank you for being with us. Can you yeah, tell us a little bit me. about... Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on, what the current state of the shutdown is in the halls of Congress? Yeah, look, right now up here on Capitol Hill, the chances of a shutdown are much greater than not. In fact, some folks are saying that a shutdown at the end of the day tomorrow is inevitable. And that's because right now there's no clear path to a stopgap bill to keep the government funded beyond tomorrow night's uh, midnight deadline. Uh, just before, just a few minutes ago, the House advanced a partisan stopgap bill that's intended to keep the government open until October 31st. It would also implement a number of spending cuts and it includes a lot, uh, a number of border security provisions ones that were passed as part of the House GOP conference's marquee border bill. But that piece of legislation is expected to fail 
when it comes to the House floor for a final vote later today. A number of hardline conservatives by the Hills count, it's at least nine, have said that they are either a hard no on the legislation or leaning in that direction. A number of those hardliners have said that they just won't support a continuing resolution under any circumstances. So, you know, while that failed, while a failed vote would be a defeat for Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who has pushed for the stopgap bill to make it over the finish line, it wouldn't actually change the, the Congress's, uh, uh, the, the government's chances of a shutdown because this piece of legislation was widely expected to not move in the in the Senate, where Democrats would be starkly opposed to it. The White House this morning also issued a veto threat. So that's what's going on in the House right now. When you look at the other chamber of, of, of Congress, when you look at the Senate, they are moving ahead with a bipartisan continuing resolution that would keep the lights on until November 17th. Uh, it includes also billions of dollars for aid to Ukraine, in addition to disaster relief. Uh, that one is expected to pass uh, within the coming days on a bipartisan basis. But Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that he will not bring it to the floor for a vote. A number of conservatives have voiced concerns with the Ukraine funding and the lack of border security provisions included in that Senate bill. So right now, where things stand, there is not a clear path to keeping the government open uh, beyond the end of this month. And again, that deadline, tomorrow night at midnight. We've also heard previously that some members of the Freedom Caucus are happy to just pass individual appropriations bills one at a time. What is the status on that, Michael? Is there any possibility of them having the leverage to make that the new process as opposed to just passing CR after CR? Well, look, the message here from Speaker... Kevin McCarthy is that they want to continue with this appropriations process. Just last night, House Republicans got three of those appropriations bills over the finish line. One of them, one funding agriculture and the FDA did not pass. That brings four, a total of four of 12 appropriations bills passed by the House. And again, Speaker McCarthy's message here is he wants to continue through regular order and he wants to get the remaining eight appropriations bills over the finish line. But there's just not enough time for that with how much time is left until the government funding runs out. Again, that deadline is tomorrow night. The House still has to get eight of those bills across the finish line. The Senate has not passed any of those bills. And then the two chambers are going to have to hash out their differences and to come to some sort of consensus on those spending measures because, for start, you know, they're, they're, they're very apart in terms of, of uh, top line numbers and other policy riders. So uh, when hardline conservatives say that they want to continue with the appropriations process, that is also what Speaker Kevin McCarthy is saying. McCarthy, however, wants to pass a stopgap to buy some more time. Some of these hardlines of conservatives are saying they will not support a continuing resolution. And they're saying, you know what, instead, the House and Congress should have started its work earlier. Uh, it's because of their lack of, uh, of, of trying to get this done in a quicker fashion that we're now staring down a shutdown. Yeah, and if I can follow up on that real quick, because Congressman Gates has basically said, I've had the wool pulled over my eyes enough times where I have the promise of a continuing resolution, we'll continue the appropriation works work afterwards, and then it doesn't end up happening. And now there's reports that he's had this really knockdown, drag out fight, fight with Speaker McCarthy behind closed doors. Uh, what is, how does that acrimonious relationship at this point and the lack of trust there affect this whole process? Well, it doesn't help, right? It definitely doesn't help. But one thing I'll note when you talk about this relationship between Gates and McCarthy, that the acrimony between the two men is nothing new. We'll remember back to the January speakers race. Matt Gates never, not once throughout all 15 ballots of voting, gave his support to Kevin McCarthy. Uh, the two have traded personal barbs uh, throughout the months, but 
these tensions between the two have really been heightened in recent weeks as you know, Congress has been going, uh, has been moving forward in the appropriations process and through this spending battle. And that all comes on the backdrop of uh, Matt Gates heightening his threats to force a vote on ousting McCarthy as speaker. He has said that if McCarthy does not answer a number of demands that have to do with legislation and spending, he will force a vote on ousting Kevin McCarthy as speaker. So when you get into these, these funding negotiations, of course, House Republicans can just afford to lose a handful of votes on any partisan spending bill because of that slim majority. So this acrimony is definitely not helpful when you talk about this math problem that McCarthy is going to find himself in time and time again on these you know, sometimes controversial spending bills. We had AOC criticize Tony Gonzalez for visiting the border with Elon Musk amid trying to prevent the government shutdown and passing a stopgap bill. Do you identify this as a problem at all, the absence of certain representatives affecting their ability to actually pass a stopgap bill? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's what I said before. It all comes down to this math problem. Uh, if, if you have a full Congress, uh, all members are in, House Republicans can only afford to lose four of their own members on any given vote. So when you start talking about these absences, that margin can decrease and that can you know, make it easier for Democrats to defeat uh, a motion or or a procedural vote or even a, a full piece of legislation. So yeah, Tony Gonzalez not being in Washington for those votes, it doesn't make McCarthy's job any helpful because again, as you start getting to these absences and the more members that are not present to vote, that lowers the margin of, of the members that they can lose on any of these given partisan votes. And as we head into a fall election season in Virginia, there's a state House of Delegates and Senate elections going on across the board there. I've heard some from some Republican strategists and donors that they're quite concerned about the effect that a shutdown might have on Republicans' chances there because there are so many government employees who live in Northern Virginia. Michael, if you could just break down a little bit some of the uh, outside consequences of a government shutdown, both politically and personally, for the people who might be put out of work? Yeah, sure. Personally, I mean, they are significant, right? A number of federal workers will be furloughed, going without pay. Uh, there's also questions about pay for, for members of the armed services and the military. So that is not you know, going to be a great situation for some of these federal workers who are not deemed essential during this period of time for the shutdown. And then when you talk about the political ramifications, this is something that I've been keeping a close eye on up here on Capitol Hill. There are a handful of Republican House members who are representing districts that President Biden won back in 2020. Look, Democrats right now are already messaging this potential uh, rather impending shutdown as something that was called caused by Republicans and, and by, you know, we've seen Leader Jeffries, for example, say this is a MAGA Republican shutdown crisis. That's not going to be helpful for some of those more moderate Biden district Republicans when they're trying to run for reelection again in these blue districts. And this messaging has them being part of a group that forced a shutdown. So politically and personally speaking, uh, they're, they're, you know, downfalls to a shutdown. And I'll just note, this is something that Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been messaging in recent weeks. He's been saying, I don't want to shut down. A shutdown doesn't help anybody. In fact, nobody wins a shutdown. Historically speaking, Republicans have come out of shutdowns, not A, getting any of the demands they had asked for, and B, just looking worse politically. This is a message we've been seeing from McCarthy to try to cajole his conference into supporting a partisan stopgap bill that can then put them in a stronger position to negotiate with Democrats in both the Senate and the White House.
It appears to me that there's an ongoing debate within Congress as to whose fault this is. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene clearly blaming the Democrats. You have Matt Gates directly saying this wouldn't be the Democrats' fault. We can blame Speaker McCarthy. And then Speaker McCarthy saying we have to do something about the crisis at the border. If you know the government does shut down, this will not be our fault. It seems that McCarthy well knows that with his provision on the border in the bill, it would not pass the Senate. So is that why we have most folks uh, uh, blaming McCarthy, even Republicans from within you know, the House GOP blaming McCarthy for this shutdown? How do you see that debate shaking out? Yeah, look, it's an interesting question. I think that one of the reasons why McCarthy is taking some heat right now when it comes to this impending shutdown is because when you look on the Senate side, uh, Leader McConnell and Leader Schumer have been moving forward in a bipartisan manner. They've so far cleared two procedural hurdles to advance a bipartisan continuing resolution that will kick the funding deadline to November 17th. It appropriates money for Ukraine aid in addition to disaster relief. It authorizes, it extends authorization of the FAA. So you see the Senate moving forward in a bipartisan basis. But again, to something I mentioned earlier, Kevin McCarthy says that if the Senate passes that, which is widely expected to happen within the coming days, he would not put it on the floor for a vote. That's because a number of conservatives have said that they are opposed to the uh, to the Ukraine funding in within the lack of border security provisions that were included in that piece of legislation. So, you know, that sort of gives people the ammo to be able to say, well, Kevin McCarthy, this is a viable plan to fund the government. You're refusing to bring it to the floor for a vote, which, by the way, would pass with wide bipartisan margins. Again, this is something that has the blessing of both McConnell and Schumer. So I think that's why McCarthy's taking some heat right now. But on the other side of it, uh, you know, the vote later today will be a really big determination of how things go from here, because if the House is eight House Republicans are able to get that partisan stopgap over the finish line, which, again, is not expected amid this conservative opposition. They're then able to have stronger leverage at the negotiating table and say, well, we passed something, Senate. Why don't you take it up? Of course, that's never going to happen with the Senate controlled by Democrats. Democrats strongly opposed to, as you mentioned, the border provisions in there. Also, the the, the spending cuts in there. There are pretty deep spending cuts made in a lot of different areas of the federal budget. So that's sort of when you start getting into what ends up being Washington's favorite pastime, the blame game. But right now, as things stand, yeah, McCarthy's taking a lot of heat because we see the Senate moving forward in a bipartisan fashion. McCarthy is giving into the demands of his right flank. Michael Schnell, congressional reporter for The Hill. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Alarm on the GOP front, some of America's biggest Republican donors will gather in Virginia Beach next month for a meeting to rally behind Governor Glenn Youngkin. The gathering, called the Red Vest Retreat, will begin on October 17th and be focused on the Republican effort to win full control of the General Assembly in Virginia's upcoming elections. But according to a Washington Post reporter, this will also be an opportunity to try to shove Youngkin into the Republican presidential race. Thomas Turfey, a Republican donor, said Youngkin appears to be leaving the door open. And if Republicans win in Virginia, maybe we can talk him into it. The money would be there. Former Attorney General under Donald Trump, William Barr, reportedly told The Washington Post, I'd welcome Youngkin putting his oar in. Even though nearly one in three potential Republican primary voters watched the debate Wednesday, the performance of the candidates had little impact on the overall race. According to a 538 Washington Post-Ipsos poll taken after the debate, 
33% say Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had the best performance, while 18% say the same for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and 15% for entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. But most of those who say DeSantis performed best already had a favorable opinion of him, according to the Washington Post survey taken before the debate. The Republicans considering DeSantis and Haley did increase four points among those considering voting in the primaries from 59 to 63% for DeSantis and from 43 to 47% for Haley after the debate. But all of the other candidates saw even smaller shifts than just those four points. Although the share of Republicans saying candidates performed excellent or very good decreased for most candidates from the first debate. A recent Economist YouGov poll found among 513 registered voters saw Trump with the lead at 53% and DeSantis second in line at just 14. Brutal. So this is obviously why some of the big Republican donors, Jess, are considering bringing in Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. They want someone who can conceivably challenge Trump. I think it's a horrible idea. I actually love Governor Glenn Youngkin. I live in Virginia. I voted for him, full disclosure. Um, I would be very sad for him to leave Virginia, and I would be especially sad for him to go on the campaign trail only to get decimated by Trump, lose the Trump base, and basically destroy all of the credibility that he's built up with Republican voters. I mean, this would basically just look like the Republican establishment and the mega donors who have always despised Trump because he went against the old guard way of thinking in the Republican Party on issues like war and economic spending and tariffs. And it would be a concerted effort to take that guy out using Youngkin as their sort of willful pawn. And I think Youngkin is better than that. He should hold off wait until Trump is done running and whether or not he becomes president, maybe he can run the next time around. But to do it now as a very concerted anti-Trump effort, I think it's just a death wish. I think it's extraordinarily interesting that at a time when we have the GOP conducting an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden for the business dealings with Burisma based in Ukraine, that you have this mega donor, Thomas Petterfee, trying to prop up this candidate, Youngkin, who seemingly does not plan to enter the race, and the mega donors seem to think they can convince him to enter the race. You had Ron DeSantis receive $570,000 from Thomas Petterfee, who, by the way, is a citizen of Ukraine, who is very friendly with Viktor Orban. Viktor Orban instituted a policy where you cannot talk about sexual orientation in schools from kindergarten through the third grade. Then shortly after this donation from Thomas Petterfee, you have Ron DeSantis pushing this similar policy known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. The influence that this person, Thomas Petterfee, who is a citizen of Hungary, has over United States election, I think is outsized. When we consider the amount of influence that mega donors have over politics, we would be probably not so surprised to find that Thomas Petterfee was the reason CPAC was held in Hungary. And so when you think about the Republican Party being so critical of foreign influence in American politics and American government, you'd think they would be critical of their mega donor, not even being a citizen of the United States, being particularly fond of the anti-socialist policies of the far-right government in Hungary. Now he wants to prop up a hand-picked candidate Youngkin to enter the race when we already have Republicans running in the race that are establishment candidates. And so it's very shocking to me that American politics is going in the direction of whoever the rich guys have influence over, not even necessarily the establishment, are those who are favored to win. I don't think 
you know, a candidate like Youngkin, if he was propped up, would beat Donald Trump, but could possibly be the front runner among the current Republicans that we have. Yeah, I think it's a shame that that level of influence and money being flown or, uh, excuse me, being given to these uh, politicians has kind of tainted the grassroots cultural movement in the GOP, um, what you're talking about in terms of the parental rights and education bill and Governor Youngkin's policies on transgender students were really born out of grassroots organizing among parents who were attending school board meetings, who found out during the pandemic some of the things that their kids were learning in school. And that was a legitimate, I think, um, new focus from Republican voters. And to have that injection of cash suggests that it wasn't, I think is damaging to that larger cultural debate. Um, when we go back to when Youngkin first jumped into the governor race, even during the primary, he it was his idea actually to reach out to some of those parents who were protesting at the, at the school board meetings and talk to them directly and hear about their concerns before it was ever really a campaign strategy. Um, actually, it was before he even announced his campaign that he was talking to those individuals. And again, I think Youngkin has a lot of credibility. I think he's done a really good job as governor. He has a very high approval rating in a state that is trending blue, um, basically is solid blue at this point. And he stands a chance to have a Republican trifecta this fall in the state House of Delegates and the state Senate alongside the governorship. To go and try to battle against Trump now seems pretty boneheaded. I think he should continue what he's doing, which is focusing on these statewide races. He's been really heavily involved. I just went down to Virginia Beach recently for a piece of reporting I did called the Yunkin Blueprint. And in uh, throughout that reporting, I was able to talk to the governor himself. He was asked by several people at a Parents Matter event in Virginia Beach to run for president. And his response was basically, I'm too busy. And he is busy. He has his hand directly in a lot of these races, especially the swing races in places like Virginia Beach and Norfolk. And he's trying to fashion together a more effective way for the Republican Party to run races. And it's not just built off of his popularity, but also recent redistricting in the state, selecting good candidates that actually speak to the concerns of voters rather than trying to nationalize every single uh, campaign. Uh, he's bringing in a ton of fundraising money, and he's launching the Secure Your Vote initiative, which is encouraging Republicans to bank their votes early and participate in mail-in voting and early voting so that uh, Republican campaigns can then view that incoming data and tailor their strategies uh, toward that. It's what the Democrat Party has been trying to do for the past decade or so. It's kind of uh, stunning that the Republican Party hasn't made a concerted effort to do that until just recently. And so he clearly has a good strategy. He has a good plan. But let's get it done in Virginia first, see how it goes, and finish out your time as governor before trying to take on who has so obviously been ordained the party's leader at this point with a 50 percentage point lead against all the other candidates. I think I would push back on the fact that a lot of the organizing around the don't say gay bill 
And a lot of these bills came from a lot of organizing with Moms for Liberty, which is a 501c4 organization, meaning they don't need to disclose their donors. There's been a lot of questions around how this organizing is funded, but it's certainly not grassroots. They claim to have a budget of around $300,000 a year, but we also know that they get a lot of money from Republican super PACs as well. So when we think about how well-funded this organizing is, the last thing I would call it is grassroots. You have these very well-trained organizers backed by a ton of money. They are paid to do this work. They come in and they talk with parents and members of the school board about these issues that were not issues before they came in. And so I think when we think about the money and the influence on politics, when we call something grassroots, it can't be something that's a top-down approach coming from an organization with a ton of money. When I think of grassroots, I think of people volunteering their free time because they care so much about an issue. I wouldn't categorize you know, the, the Moms for Liberty and the push for these don't say gay bills, not having teaching about gender orientation or sexual orientation and having books banned at schools. I wouldn't call that grassroots. That's from the same infrastructure that's funding a lot of these campaigns and influencing the policy platforms of a lot of our politicians. The infrastructure actually came after the grassroots movement, though. Moms for Liberty wasn't actually founded until January of 2021. And the school board movement in Virginia started well before that, actually pretty shortly after the pandemic launched in the summer of 2020. And it really was built out of parents going to school board meetings because they were upset that their children's schools were closed and that in order to go back to school, they might be subject to mask and vaccine mandates. It was born out of that that those parents then started looking into the curriculum as they saw what their kids were learning on Zoom meetings. And that was when CRT and radical gender ideology became a part of the conversation. Groups like Moms for Liberty, groups like uh, the parental rights groups in Virginia, which include one found that uh, found by Ann Pryor, all came after that. So there was a grassroots movement initially, and just like any grassroots movement, has now been supported by infrastructure that was grown out of that. A perfect example of this was when Stacy Langton, who was a mom at a Fairfax County public school school board meeting, showed up. She had no connection to any of these political operations. She had found out that her school library, her kids' school library, had explicit content in many of the books there. And she tried to read them aloud at a school board meeting and was actually censored because she was told it wasn't appropriate for television. It wasn't appropriate for the school board meeting feed because children might be watching, which was incredibly ironic considering children could have gone and picked up that book in a school library. So I'm, I don't think your characterization of the parental rights movement, particularly in Virginia, is accurate. It sounds like the issue of parental rights as it you know, regards this topic of sexual orientation, of gender orientation, of LGBTQ plus issues, that became more of the central focus of this group after this injection of funding came in. Similarly, Ron DeSantis making the don't say gay bill central in his focus came shortly after this funding came in from Thomas Petterfee. And it mirrors this exact policy that Viktor Orban enacted in Hungary. So when we think about the foreign influence on our country, on our elections, on policy making in the United States, is this focus on transgender issues, on sexual orientation and sexual content, on gender identity, is it coming from actual working American people that see it as an issue? Or is this something to obfuscate the focus on our failing economy? 
on the fact that most working people are living paycheck to paycheck. That is why most of these Republican candidates are not garnering support because that's not central in their campaign. And that is also why Youngkin would fail because when you have billionaires who have an agenda not to restructure our economy so that it works for everyday working people, uh, that's when you have the kind of political candidates that don't garner the support necessary to win elections. And I think we saw Donald Trump lose the popular vote because of that exact reason, because they saw him run as a populist and then govern as an elitist and cut taxes for the very wealthy and not do much to bolster up the working class that desperately needs an increase in wages which have been stagnant since the 70s. So I don't think Youngkin's gonna be their guy. I don't think these existing candidates are gonna be their guy. They need a plan to improve the economy and the conditions for working people and stop being distracted from these issues, which we can trace back to foreign influence in American politics. I think people are capable of taking on economic and cultural issues at the same time. I think American voters are incredibly intelligent. I would also point out that the Tax Cut and Jobs Act did have a historic tax cut for the middle and working class as well, although that did expire and the people who voted for that bill should have made sure that that cut was a permanent part of the legislation. We're gonna have to leave it there. We'll be back with more Rising after this. A new survey of Republican voters paints a picture of a new conservative electorate. The poll conducted by the American Compass and YouGov found that GOP voters have abandoned the traditional Republican Party focus on tax cuts, deregulation and free trade to focus more on the new rights worker first framing of key economic challenges to the old rights business friendly approach. And when it comes to top issues among conservatives, transgender activism tops the chart at 69%, followed by woke corporations at 62%, uh, illegal immigration at 60%, critical race theory at 52%, and globalization at 50%. Here with us to break this down and more is Executive Director of American Compass, Oren Cass. Oren, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start with those numbers that Jessica mentioned on cultural issues. I was kind of surprised, honestly, to see them so high. I think we're kind of told uh, quite often, uh, especially on the conservative side, that these are issues for the very online right and maybe don't resonate as much with voters in the real world. But here we see that perhaps that's not true. I wonder if you could speak to that uh, perception and, and why these issues are so popular among conservative voters. And I'm also curious on if you are concerned at all that these might alienate the middle. Yeah, I think it's it's a great question. And, and we think there are two things going on. You know, one is that this is clearly an area of focus for a lot of voters, the idea that this is just some fringe issue or, you know, something, something the media is whipping up uh, isn't the case. We found that this is something that voters were focused on, frankly, however, however you cut the data, even if you pick some other issue and ask, you know, okay, of of voters who are focused on tax rates, what else do they care about? They also all care about these cultural issues. So um, they definitely can't be written off. That being said, I think the the second thing we found that's really interesting is that they they register so highly on a survey like this because they are the area of consensus. That is, whatever type of Republican you're talking to, they all feel the same way about this set of issues. Whereas if you want to ask them which economic issues they care about, at this point, you see a real split. You see some who are focused on those old taxes, regulation, free trade type issues, and some who are focused on a, a much newer set of issues, workers, families, and so forth. 
And so the, the responses on those other issues just get kind of spread out and watered down. If you actually zoom in on, on a chunk of voters, if you say, okay, you know, of these new right voters who are focused on these newer issues, what do they care about? Well, then you see that that those new issues, they're right up there with the cultural issues. If, if you focus on just those old voters and say, what do they care about? Well, those old issues are right up there with the cultural issues, but it, it all gets watered down because there's there's so much disagreement within the party right now. Orna, I'm curious about the methodology of the of the poll in the survey here. Were poll those who were polled given a definition of transgender activism or woke corporation? And was this a list that you all made that was predisposed given to the, the survey takers? Uh, was it open-ended? What was the methodology there? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we ended up whittling it down to a, a set of 12 issues that we wanted to present. I think it's always a challenge. Like you you could list hundreds of issues, but we tried to do was pick a, a representative set uh, across these different kind of categories that, that people are thinking about. And so, for instance, on the cultural issues, the, the three options we provided were, you know, one was transgender activists are trying to erase the difference between boys and girls. One was woke corporations are forcing their values on Americans. And, and so those were the terms that the respondents saw that then get shortened in, in the chart to just, you know, transgender activism or woke corporations. Um, and, and so, you know, we emphasize in the poll, right in the question, we said, look, obviously there are lots of issues. You might have care more about other things that aren't here. You might think some of the things here aren't the ones that are important, but just of these ones that are presented, which do you see as the top challenges? Uh, and and there were 12 options and respondents could choose anywhere from two to five. And so, um, you know, we don't think it necessarily is is a comprehensive look at, at every issue, but it's it's a pretty good snapshot of of how voters are feeling across the different types of issues that are, are getting brought up a lot. I think what struck me most about this survey, Oren, is that these issues that have been identified as top issues among voters, particularly in terms of the economic vision from the new right, are things that organizations like American Compass have been talking about for years now, and yet Republican leadership is still kind of focused on the lower taxes, smaller government, free trade side of this. And this was not shown more perfectly than in this last GOP debate. In this survey, you find that 41 percent of these voters believe that unions are a positive force, which is pretty stunning, as American Compass points out, for what is traditionally a, a pro-right-to-work party. And yet on that GOP debate stage, you heard a lot of those people really downplay the concerns of the workers in the UAW strike. Tim Scott, um, for example, suggested that he would fire people who go on strike um, and, and tried to dodge when he was asked about it. So wh why do you think the party apparatus is so slow to react to this changing ideology among the voters? Well, I, I think any party apparatus typically operates within a bubble to some extent. You know, on, on the right, people like to poke fun at the left and say, you know, look at these progressive politicians who are only listening to the progressive activists and, and cooking up this stuff that's disconnected from, from what the country wants. Um, the dynamic's a little different on the right, but in, in some ways it's similar. You have, you know, elected officials who are listening to a small set of professional consultants who hear a lot from donors and and what they hear as and an assume to be the message, plus what, what they themselves grew up with in prior decades, 
is just in a lot of cases different from where the country and, and even the Republican Party is right now. And, you know, it's been very funny to watch the reaction to, to this survey online and actually have a lot of folks who, who still want to defend the, the more old right views. They get very upset at the way we worded the questions. You know, a, a great example of this is, is we tested whether or not, you know, voters think a tight labor market is a good thing and, and we should tell employers they have to go pay workers more. Or is a labor shortage a bad thing and we should consider higher immigration to, to fill jobs? And, and people got very upset about this. They said, that's outrageous. Of course, voters aren't going to choose labor shortages are bad and we need more immigration. I agree. Of course, voters aren't going to choose that. But that has been the exact message from, from huge swaths of the party, certainly of the business lobby, of a lot of the think tanks on the right of center. And so, you know, the fact that people are getting upset that we're just actually presenting what people are saying and showing that voters just do not want to hear it anymore, uh, I, I think is really important and, and will hopefully be helpful in, in piercing that bubble a little bit. So this is a poll that YouGov has conducted with similar questions time and again. What do you make of the, the trends and the changes in responses uh, among those who are polled, among the voters. Specifically, you know, earlier YouGov found on the transgender issue that someone who knew someone who was transgender had a member of their community that was transgender, they were more likely to say that discrimination against those who are transgender uh, is, is more of a problem. Now, have you seen any trends change? And if so, what do you credit that to? Is it is it media coverage? Is it sort of more organic grassroots changing of, of beliefs? Can you just briefly describe what you make of the trends and what you credit those to? Well, you know, I think a lot comes down to, in, in some of these cases, what you're actually asking people. And so, for instance, there's nothing inconsistent about thinking it's a problem that transgender activists are eliminating the difference between boys and girls and also being concerned if you know transgender people in, in your own life who are being discriminated against. Those, it's it's perfectly possible for somebody to, to hold both of those ideas in their head at the same time. And I think a lot of what happens with, with the polling that gets done generally, you know, th this is the first time we've developed a set of questions like this to do with YouGov. Um, I, I, I think something that, that American Compass tends to do particularly well is, is pose the questions in the way that um, they actually flow through into public policy debates. So, for instance, you'll often see, oh, well, voters choose jobs in the economy as their top issue, right? Well, that's fine. We didn't even offer jobs in the economy as an option because what, what are you going to do with that? What does that mean? The, the question is, what are the actual challenges that people see in their lives that are going to connect in a meaningful way to the kinds of things that politicians might be talking about? And so that's how we tried to, to present the set of issues that, that voters could choose between. And then when you dive into, okay, what do you think about a particular issue? We always try to provide a good explanation. Look, some people say this, other people say that, which is closer to your own view? And I think that's really helpful both in, in just understanding what, what the American people think and want. And I think it's really helpful to, to politicians to help them understand, um, you know, as, as you try to think about what good policy is and how to talk about it, uh, what is it that voters are, are focused on? And, and I think that's what you really see come through in our results, whether it's on, you know, really openness to unions, whether it's being quite critical and skeptical of Wall Street, 
Um, you, you see that GOP voters just are not interested in the sort of dogmatic talking points that have been repeated over and over again for decades. The, the problems in America right now are different. And, you know, what, what we really emphasize is it's, it's the leaders who figure that out and figure out how to talk about it, how to address those issues, how to build a coalition around it. Those are going to be the leaders who are successful. You alluded to some of the online up. chatter. Sorry, Jessica, go ahead with your follow-up. I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Was it that you didn't include jobs in the economy because that wasn't an issue you felt a candidate could have a policy platform around or propose policies to improve jobs in the economy? No, every candidate has, excuse me, a, a, a position on jobs in the economy. The problem is that when you list jobs in the economy as the issue, it's it's just too generic and vague. It doesn't tell you anything about what actually people are thinking about or care about or, or want to see done. And so we try to focus on actual concrete challenges. When, when you say you care about jobs in the economy, does that mean you think tax rates on businesses are too high? Or does that mean you think too many jobs are being moved to China? Those those might both fall under jobs in the economy, but it, it's not helpful to anybody to say, well, they said jobs in the economy. What's helpful is to understand what are the actually what are the things going on in the world that that are influencing the jobs, jobs in the economy and that you would want to see politicians focused on. You alluded to some of the online chatter surrounding this poll, and, and I saw specifically some people um, suggesting that the uh, questions about reshoring manufacturing and the questions on cultural issues and the responses were proof that the new right is really just a focused on xenophobia and racism and, and being more outrightly um, bigoted. And I just very briefly, because we're almost out of time, I just wanted to get your response to those accusations. Yeah, I don't think the survey supports that at all. If, if you look, let's say, at the new right as, as a group of voters, you see actually they put greater weight on issues of globalization and immigration and worker power than they do on that set of cultural issues. Um, you know, I think there's ever since Trump sort of appeared on the scene been this effort to say like, well, if you care about losing jobs to China or you care about illegal immigration, that must be because you're racist. Um, but <laughs> frankly, that's ludicrous. Um, people care about losing jobs to China or losing jobs to anywhere because you've lost the jobs. People care about illegal immigration because it's illegal <laughs> and because it causes real problems, particularly at the lower end of the labor market. So, you know, I think anyone who writes that off as racism is uh, is, is frankly writing themselves off as as relevant to the political conversation in this country. And and it's going to be the, the politicians who take it seriously and, and talk about how to address it that actually help move the country forward. All right. Orrin Cass with American Compass. Thanks for joining us on Rising. SpaceX's Elon Musk arrived in Eagle Pass, Texas yesterday, an area where large groups of migrants have been crossing the Rio Grande into the United States to get a firsthand look at what's been going on at the southern border. Musk is visiting the border with Texas representative Tony Gonzalez. Musk wrote on S. X yesterday evening, just arriving at Eagle Pass. We'll start X live stream soon, so you can see the border situation in real time. So here we are uh, at Eagle Pass, uh, and we're going to be uh, meeting with uh, uh, the sort of major the major officials uh, 
uh, and uh, law enforcement are responsible for the water and um, Andrew's here directly from them and see it, see exactly what's going on uh, for yourself. So I'm Tony Gonzalez. I'm the uh, local congressman here in the district. My district is 823 miles of the southern border, places like Eagle Pass, El Paso, Uvalde, Del Rio. Uh, we've been at the epicenter of this border crisis. Many people you'll see are fleeing poverty. I get that. Sure, sure, sure. But there are others that are fleeing, you know, incarceration. Yes, <laughs> we, we are basically it seems like a place where you can go to get away from the law. Anyway, that's like, I don't know if you can sort of see that group, but. In that conversation, Gonzalez and Musk also implied that possible murderers were being led into the country through the border. Musk announced his visit on X earlier this week, saying, I spoke with Rep Tony Gonzalez tonight. He confirmed that it is a serious issue. They are being overwhelmed by unprecedented numbers, just hit an all-time high and still growing, and going to visit Eagle Pass later this week to see what's going on for myself. Joining us now to weigh in on this in the current situation at the border is senior writer at Town Hall, Julio Rosas. Julio, thank you so much for joining us. I understand you were at Eagle Pass for about a week yourself. Shortly, You left shortly before Elon arrived, but give us a, a rundown of what you saw at the border. Is I mean, there's no question that these are unprecedented numbers. How much exactly is this overwhelming both Border Patrol agents as well as the shelters that they typically keep these people in, or detention centers, rather? I mean, so I, I've been to Eagle Pass a number of times uh, over these past couple of years, and this was the busiest I've ever seen it. Uh, part of the reason why I went down there uh, last week was because there was a concern that due to the consistent, I mean, you know, 2,000 people entering per day in that in that area where you saw Elon Musk and Congressman Gonzalez, um, there was a concern that because the holding facilities were already over, over capacity, that they were going to have to start keeping people underneath the international bridge, similar to what happened not too long ago in Del Rio, Texas, which is about an hour north of that when all those Haitians were, were down there. And I, I, went, I was there at that time myself. So um, for, for a small town like Eagle Pass, it's about 20,000 people, if I'm recalling correctly. And I, I mean, the, 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 the population of Eagle Pass in terms of illegal number, illegal immigrants coming in um, is, is exceeded within a week. Um, and, and that's happening on a weekly basis. And so it, it's not sustainable for Border Patrol. It's not sustainable for the local uh, authorities. I was with the fire department. And uh, unfortunately, the very first call of the day that they got when I was with them was to pull out uh, a man who had drowned five, five days prior. And they, they finally saw his body. And so I, we, we had to go re recover that. And so th this is something that's happening, not just in Eagle Pass, but I mean, El Paso as well. Uh, the Rio Grande Valley down in Brownsville, the Border Patrol sector chief just yesterday tweeted that she was experiencing another surge down there, too. So this is not just one place. This is the, basically the majority of the entire southern border. When you were at Eagle Pass, did you speak with the migrants about their reason to come to the United States or what their view was? So a lot of them uh, were from Venezuela. So obviously there's a lot of incentive to leave that country. But what's interesting is that oftentimes, and this isn't in every case, but oftentimes they had already left Venezuela and they had settled in some other South American or Central American country. And so um, because of the Biden administration's policies, and they decided that they want to come to the United States to make more money and they're going to enter through this way. And so there, there's different reasons for, for different countries. Uh, Nicaragua is also a popular one because obviously there's, there's a you know, regime there as well. 
but I would say that you know the the vast majority of the people that I've talked to, they simply want to work and make more money, and so they would fall under economic asylum. But there's concerns about whether or not that's going to be valid through what we have in our asylum laws and who's actually eligible for that, because it's not just South American countries. I mean, there's people from all over uh, the world uh, coming coming across. I mean, we've had people from Africa uh, show up as, as well. I've met people as far away as Uzbekistan during my time. So it it depends on the country. It depends on exactly what they're looking for. But I would say the vast majority of the people that I've talked to are simply coming for economic reasons. Yeah, and Julio, Democratic politicians have been talking about giving work permits to some of these migrants, particularly in New York City. They've been in, trying to increase their shelter capacity. There was this really heartbreaking video of a veteran, an uh, elderly veteran, who was kicked out of his nursing home to make room for these migrants. And so it seems like, separate from the policy changes that were made at the beginning of the Biden administration, now on a state level, you have Democratic mayors and governors increasing the pool factors for these migrants to make that trek to the border. Can you just speak a little bit about some of the other potential incentives for migrants coming at this particular time, as well as some of the measures that could be enacted in terms of border security that would maybe prevent the types of crises that we're seeing in cities like New York? I, I can tell you that people in New York and, and other places as well, Chicago, um, they're advocating for a fast-track work permits for these people is definitely going to provide an even greater incentive because now not only are people um, in Central and South America going to see their family and friends already in the United States, but now they see that they're already working, right? And like I mentioned before, a lot of these people, they simply just want to make more money, which is understandable, but that that's why they want to come. So not only are they seeing that it's really relatively easy than in years past to illegally enter the country, but now they're seeing that, oh, we can even start working a lot sooner than they used to before. Because um, that, that's why, I understand why they want to do that, because they want to get these people out of these shelters. And there's been a whole host of problems uh, with both within and in the surrounding neighborhoods with that. But the problem with that is that it's going to create an even bigger incentive. So really, um, when, you, when you hear people like AOC and all these other Democrats saying that the border is secure and like always need to throw money at it, that's not going to solve it because what's only going to solve people stopping from coming is what the mayor of Eagle Pass recently said is that, you know, he said it's not fair that people who did it legally the right way had to wait years, pay all this money. And there's all, there's all these other people that are just waltzing in and not facing any long-term consequences for that. So um, I understand, like I said, I understand why they want to have these work permits so they can get them out of these shelters, but it's just going to create an even bigger influx. And I can predict um, that with the upcoming election, you know, should Trump be the nominee of the GOP, uh, I suspect there's going to be even bigger activity in the months and weeks leading up to the election because people are going to want to come into the United States uh, just in case Trump does win in 2024, because obviously things will, will shift if he does under office. I want to zoom out for a second and think about the bigger picture here. A lot of the, the countries and the region you mentioned, you know, Nicaragua being an example, this was a country the United States meddled in quite heavily, specifically uh, the CIA and U.S. military, in order to overthrow a democratically elected uh, regime. And what we had was you know, decades of instability following that. And Nicaragua wasn't the only country where the United States meddled in, usually doing so, uh, to secure a, a line of 
extraction of not only resources, but the exploitation of labor across Latin America. And so we gained a lot of GDP from this meddling, and we left a lot of these countries pretty politically unstable. Do you see there being some obligation of the United States to make whole a lot of these countries uh, that they extracted resources and exploited labor from and also destabilized politically? I mean, yeah, look, there's no doubt that, you know, the United States has definitely kind of created some of the, the long-term consequences of what we're seeing right now. But what I would say to that is actually that, you know, similar to what's happening with with Ukraine, right? I mean, we're sending so much money over there. And with the state that our country is in right now, I mean, yes, America is still pretty wealthy considering, you know, when you look at all these other places. But when you look at all of the other issues that Americans are facing and not being able to pay, you know, they're having a hard time paying grocery bills, they're paying gas. I mean, credit card debt is at the highest level it's ever been inflation. Um, you know, I think a lot of Americans would agree that, you know, before we help anybody else, we got to be able to help our own our own citizenry. And that's why when you have Democrats in strong blue cities saying, you know, sounding like Republicans on this issue, I think that's why, you know, we're seeing this shift because people realize that we're not in the position that we once were, you know, 2020 really changed a lot of things. And, you know, obviously the past happened. Yes, I'm not denying that, but we have to face the reality right now and what, what we have to face in terms of our own issues. And so that's not to say that we can't be compassionate. That's not to say that we can't try to figure out ways to, you know, fix some of the issues from the past. But I think what a lot of Americans are seeing right now, they're seeing a lot of money going to Ukraine. And they're seeing a lot of money being spent on these people who entered illegally while they themselves are being left behind. Yeah, and Julio, I would point out as well that giving these people work permits um, is kind of counterproductive in a tight labor market because you want to be able to make sure that American citizens who are not currently employed or not involved in the labor market would get uh, higher pay and, and better uh better working conditions before outsourcing the job to what is essentially an illegal migrant scab. Uh, I also want to turn to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She slammed Elon Musk's Eagle Pass visit, writing on Twitter, what's funny about this photo is that the House is holding important votes in D.C. tonight. People are scrambling to avoid a shutdown. But this Republican congressman decided to skip town to joyride with a billionaire when his own party has just a single digit margin and needs his vote. I'd love to get your response to that. I mean, I think it goes back to the point I just made, which is that there are also economic consequences to this stream of migration. Uh, the government shutdown has them. So does so does an open border policy. Can you just give us your response to AOC's criticism there? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just typical of her just to talk about anything without actually knowing what's actually happening. Um, it, it, I mean, speaking again to what's what's actually happening at the border, I mean, she she knew about all these issues way beforehand, right? And she even went down to the border under the Trump administration, right? You know, she had that famous photo op of her crying uh, outside at, at, at the chain link fence. And of course, now she doesn't care about that. She just, She's not willing to see that for herself when there are kids in cages right now, uh, just because, again, like, there are so many capacity issues. So, I mean, I, I, I know it's, it's within a meme within conservatives to say, you know, well, imagine if, you know, a Democrat did this. But, I mean, it, it is worth pointing out that um, all these Democrats, I mean, even Ayanna Presley recently was insisting to, to Jake Tapper that the border was secure. And it's, just, and, it, and it's not. I mean, the, when you have 
large gaps in personnel because Border Patrol is having to focus on hundreds of people coming at a single point, um, that's an open border because we have to realize that the cartels along the northern border uh, in Mexico take full advantage of that. And, and that's something that's not talked about enough because that's a little bit of harder to see aspect of it. But, the, you know, when you have, yeah, I mean, we've had people murdered uh, in this country because people were let in. There was that recent case where a uh, guy was 17 years old. He crossed over in El Paso earlier this year. And because he was still technically an unaccompanied minor, he was released. He turned 18 and then he raped and killed uh, a, a little girl. So, I mean, the, the, these are the consequences. I mean, there's a direct line of, of cause and effect from what has been going on since 2021 to, to today. And the border has never been perfect, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, there's always been, uh, you know, missteps in, in the past. But, it, you know, just when you talk to people who live there, they say that under the Trump administration, at least it was heading in the right direction. And they've seen a complete 180 from that. And it's been that way since 2021. So um, I... It's typical of AOC to say something like that, and that she knows something about ridiculous photos. It's her, but uh, this is this is a reality that that people are facing. And you know, for me, I mean, when we had that was the first time I ever saw a dead body in, in person when we had a uh, when the fire department pulled them out uh, of, of the water. So that that's real. It's been happening for a while, and it's it's just it doesn't need to be this way, but but it is this way because it's a willful incompetence. All right, Julio Rosas with Town Hall. Thank you so much for your reporting on this. We'll be sure to have you back. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau continued blaming Russia for the standing ovation a Nazi-linked veteran received from the entire parliament last week. Let's watch. I also want to reiterate how deeply sorry Canada is for the situation this put President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation in. It is extremely troubling to think that this egregious error is being politicized by Russia and its supporters to provide false propaganda about what Ukraine is fighting for. The Canadian Parliament has since apologized for recognizing and applauding the 98-year-old Ukrainian veteran who fought alongside Nazis during World War II, which Trudeau called embarrassing earlier this week. The House of Commons Speaker denying having knowledge of this man's prior affiliation with the Nazi party. But you still have, you know, Trudeau essentially giving the blame to the speaker. Uh, and, and the speaker probably should have looked into the background. Is this the best veteran we could get coming out of Ukraine? It definitely strengthens this media narrative that's built on the far left in the United States, but also those aligned uh, with Russia, which isn't necessarily the far left in the United States, that we are amplifying Nazis by supporting the Ukrainian coalition in their fight against the Russian invasion. There are members of the Azov Battalion that have been bolstered by Zelensky. And that's something that even people within Ukraine are critical of. But the sentiment among Ukrainians is overwhelmingly that we will take whatever fighting force we can to get the Russians out of Ukraine. That is their number one priority. And they'll handle the factions within Ukraine as they have been for quite some time during the civil war there. And so they're not as welcoming of this coalition of the West as we would think they are. They more so now because of this war have a, a nationalized view of Ukraine. 
a lot of Ukrainians that formerly would have really liked to join the European Union now have more of a sense of Ukrainian identity and don't really trust the West as much as they did before. Uh, they don't really want to join uh, NATO like they did before because they see a lot of the Western countries as having failed supporting them uh, to the extent that they would have needed to defeat Russia early on before the casualties of the war reached where they are now. So it's an extremely nuanced situation, but this definitely adds fuel to that fire. Yeah, I find it so typical for our leaders, I mean, not our leaders, but political leaders generally, to pass off accountability, pass the buck, refuse to take responsibility for giving a standing ovation to a literal Nazi. I mean, in this case, uh, Bri and I talked a little bit about this on the show yesterday, but we didn't get to see the video where this guy literally says that he fought against Russia in World War II. Um, anybody who has a decent grasp on history knows exactly what that means, and yet everybody in that chamber, like a bunch of clapping seals, stood up and cheered for this guy anyway. And it should have never gotten to that point in the first place. And so I think there's a legitimate discussion to be had about why there are so many Nazis in Ukraine and why uh, U.S. dollars and Canadian dollars have apparently gone to helping bolster those Nazis, um, the failure of accounting, the failure of tracing this money to make sure that it's not falling into those hands is pretty abysmal, um, especially considering just the volume of money we've been spending, you know, tens of billions of dollars at this point on pretty much a regular basis. So I don't blame uh, the Republicans in Congress for saying, hey, time to hit the stop switch on all of this money and this weaponry that we're sending over to Ukraine. There's also this report from the Ottawa Citizen that said a Jewish advocacy group is calling on the Canadian government to release a secret 40-year-old report and other documents containing details about alleged Nazi war criminals living in Canada. Um, according to the report, the federal government has withheld a second part of a 1986 government commission about Nazis who settled in Canada, and it has heavily censored another 1986 report examining how the Nazis were able to get into the country. More than 600 pages of the document have been censored. So this is clearly a deeper issue that needs to be addressed. Um, I think it's problematic that Justin Trudeau kind of brushed it off as a blip on the radar when it's obviously something a bit deeper than that. And to just spin it into uh, Russia propaganda or it's Russia's fault that this Nazi somehow ended up on the floor of part parliament does nothing towards actually ensuring that something like this doesn't happen again. Yeah, it's interesting. Canada has a history of being quite good at deciding who is deserving of political asylum. When it comes to the case of the Rwandan genocide, you had a lot of folks try and come to the United States through Canada, some of them successfully, but you also had these trials to assess if someone qualified for political asylum and war criminals do not. And time and again, they've found that folks are not uh, able to qualify for asylum because they fall in the category of war criminal in the case of the Rwandan genocide. And we've had those same people come through the woods of Maine into the United States and then be tried in Boston only to find that, yes, they are war criminals and they don't qualify for political asylum. And so then we reach this situation uh, where what do we do with these folks? Where do we send them? They won't stay in, in Rwanda or whatever country they committed war crimes in because it's clearly unsafe for them. 
Uh, where do they go? What do we do with these individuals? It's an interesting geopolitical question. But in the case of Canada, why would they be more sympathetic of Nazis than folks on either side of the Rwandan genocide? I think that poses a really uh, intense political question for members of parliament in Canada who stood that day that they didn't pick up on that statement that they fought on the side of Russians in World War II. That should very clearly indicate that they were a part of the Nazi coalition. And so I think it's a, an interesting moment for Canadians to interrogate what is going on in their parliament, why their political and judicial process is more sympathetic to Nazis than they are folks who were present in Rwanda during the genocide. Yeah, exactly. I mean, his statement that he fought against Russia would be like the equivalent of saying uh, he fought against the United States in World War II, which should have given everyone pause. Um, we now have learned as well that Poland's education minister is apparently taking steps to try to extradite this individual and have him put on trial um, for war crimes and for slaughtering the Polish people. Um, the Canadian uh, immigration minister as well has talked about this um, Jewish group's complaint about the harboring of secrets regarding Canada's um, allowance of Nazis to enter its country. And he said something pretty chilling, which was that in many cases, Nazis were able to get into Canada more easily than Jewish people. Um, and it's just it kind of infuriating, particularly coming from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who kind of has this air of moral superiority about him. He said really nasty things about the truckers who were protesting against vaccine mandates in their industry and even seized money that was donated to them through some of these banking systems. Um, and then to find out that he is involved in this honoring of a Nazi and that his own government has been covering up the allowance of Nazis entering their country and having safe harbor there is just so ironic. Yeah, I think Trudeau's lack of active acknowledgement and lack of support given for territories affected by wildfires that are overwhelmingly occupied by indigenous peoples all across Canada signals to me that he's not very much in touch with communities that are traditionally oppressed in Canada or globally. I think there needs to be much more concentration on the fact that the Canadian government has largely ignored a lot of the wildfires if they overwhelmingly affect indigenous communities and has paid attention when they potentially will affect typically, you know, settler communities where they have large cities in Canada that are not occupied by overwhelmingly indigenous peoples. And so Trudeau has a track record of also uh, dressing up. Uh, I think he's been caught doing blackface, certainly has been caught dressing up yep. as an indigenous person for Halloween. Uh, he's not someone who's free of political scandal. So for him to speak on this with any sort of moral superiority is, is a bit ridiculous. And I think I think he's thankful that he can pass off blame to the speaker in this case, but he definitely did need to apologize. It's good he did say, I'm sorry, in that speech. I think the, the case of Nazis in Ukraine is interesting because I think of it from the perspective of what happens in a, a post-war Ukraine. I mean, post-war with Russia. Obviously, the Ukrainian civil war uh, was raging before Russia decided to invade. What's going to happen now that you have a generally armed populace post-war with Russia? I'm not sure how things are going to shake out in Ukraine, but it could be the kind of scenario 
where we're in a forever war and the United States tries to play the role of peacekeeping uh, to keep the violence from spilling into other NATO countries. And so I think post-war Ukraine, if you have a, a group of people who are Nazis or follow that ideal ideology, whether they participated in World War II or not, or are guided by those who did, I think it's a, it's a very interesting political question that we need to start thinking about now because this could be the scenario where we continue to send troops there to keep peace within Ukraine even after Russia leaves. Yeah, I just wanted to point out as well that PM Trudeau was also took more responsibility for a literally fake story about indigenous people being buried in shallow graves near a residential Catholic school that led to the vandalizing of hundreds of Catholic churches throughout Canada ended up not being true than he did for his uh, parliament standing and applauding a Nazi. So it kind of tells you everything you need to know about that guy. That's going to do it for us this week on Rising. Jess, it was wonderful to be back at the desk with you today. Yeah, it was good to do another show together. For our listeners, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye, y'all. See you next week.